The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality, and I am your host, J.V. Johnson. And we're going to be talking about UFOs, aliens, uh, crop circles, all things ET related, plus some other things with uh, a very, very well-known paranormal researcher and investigator and author, Nick Redfern. I think actually, I think you could possibly uh, join a book club that is exclusively Nick Redfern books because he's got that many, like Book of the Month Club, Nick Redfern's Book of the Month Club. He's got that many. He's got a ton of books and we're going to be talking about a bunch of them tonight. But specifically, we want to chat about things like, um, like I said, crop circles. And there's some other new ideas and topics that are being bantered around that we need to get some explanation for, like foggles. Do you know what foggles are? Well, you're going to find out tonight. And uh, alien big cats, black-eyed children, contactees, a lot of, lot of great stuff in tonight's uh, discussion for sure. I think that's all. Oh, I, one more thing. Very, very important thing, actually. Very, very important thing. Um, I want to say thank you to Christine Stroh. Christine is a new Patreon supporter for the program, and we welcome her to uh, that group of elite folks and thank her very much. Thank you, Christine, for doing that and being a supporter of the program. That helps us out greatly. And if you're interested in doing that, just go to uh, Patreon. And search for Joha, J-O-H-A-W. That is our page, and you can support us there. And also, if you're listening as a podcast listener, there is a link in the description of the podcast that will allow you to do the same thing, except that takes you right to the anchor.fm where our podcast is hosted and allows you to support us through that particular platform. All right, that does cover all the things I wanted to mention before we get started tonight. So we'll go to break, and when we come back, we will bring in our guest, Nick Redfern. We're talking about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, and other paranormal topics tonight. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to Beyond Reality Paranormal. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. I'm going to ask that you support this program. The easiest way to do that, by the way, is if you're listening as a podcast, you just open up the description of the episode and you scroll down to the bottom. And at the bottom, there is a link that says support this podcast. If you click on that, you'll be taken to a page that gives you a couple of options for supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us bring great programs to you every week, and we look forward to continuing to do that. And if you're enjoying the program on YouTube, there's another way you can support the show. Just go to the description. You'll see a link to a Patreon page. It's Joha, J-O-H-A-W. And if you go to the Patreon page, you'll be able to pledge an amount to help support the show as well. Once again, thanks for your support. Thank you for listening. Please share it with your friends. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest tonight, Nick Redfern. He's an author. He's a paranormal researcher. He's written so many books, and we're going to get into many of them, including the Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth, Flying Saucers from the Kremlin, Chupacabra Road Trip, One Man's Hunt for Vampires. And his website is nickredfern40.blogspot.com. Nick, welcome back to Beyond Reality. Great to have you here with us tonight. 
Thanks for having me on again. You know, there are a lot of people that are new to our program as we've continued to grow, and they might not know about your work, I mean, which is kind of hard to believe if you've been in anywhere in the paranormal universe. Uh, you've heard of Nick Redfern. But be- for those that don't know who you are, what you do, how'd you get started in this? Um, well, I got interested, I guess, as a kid, and um, my parents took me um, on a vacation to Scotland when I was about six years old, and um, we went to Loch Ness. You know, if you're going to go to Scotland, you've yeah. got to go to Loch Ness. Yeah, absolutely. And even as that age, I still have a few fragments of memories of my dad telling me the story of the these strange Loch Ness monsters, and um, it really sort of... Um, captured my attention even at that age and um and the reason why as well my dad wanted to go was because he actually he served in the british royal air force which is like the equivalent of the u.s air force here and um and he was a radar mechanic and um he actually was involved in three um radar based ufo cases um when he was in in the service. And so it was those sort of combinations that really got me interested. And um, I started reading books on the subject when I was about um, of the paranormal and UFOs and Bigfoot and you name it. I probably started reading books when I was 12, 13, something like that. And then after school, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't I wasn't the best student to put it uh, <laughs> uh, tactfully, and um, I just didn't know what to do. Uh, all I knew was that I didn't want to have a job that I hated, and I didn't want to have to wear a suit, <laughs> which, which don't uh, really go well with me. And so um, I actually got a job on a, uh, an entertainment magazine in England, where I lived at the time, a magazine called Zero, and. Um, I did a lot of uh, the the music-based stuff, and I, and I still do a lot of that now, sort of interviewing bands and reviewing concerts, that kind of thing. And I did that for a few years. And then I thought, well, why not try and apply the sort of j- journalistic approach that I'd been taught on the magazine? Why not try and combine that with the interest in the paranormal and sort of take a, an investigative journalistic approach to investigated weird things and that sort of brought me from Scotland at the age of five or six um, to the present day. You know, one the one thing you said there about wear, not wearing a suit, it doesn't really go well for you. I, you know, I did that for a lot of years. Uh, I owned a company where I had to wear a suit and tie every day. I'll never do it again, Nick. I'm not doing it ever <laughs> again. I'm I'm with you now. I've I've seen the light when it comes to that. Um, I need to ask you about Loch Ness a little bit. I was asked the other night what my opinion is of sea monsters in general or water monsters in oh. general, and Loch Ness came up. And I expressed a little bit of disappointment to this guest that after all this time, we haven't been able to get anything uh, more concrete, uh, with the exception of maybe there's an argument to be made for this latest, uh, this, uh, I don't know what you call it, this DNA test that was done uh, yeah. in, from, uh, from the water of Loch Ness, and they found a tremendous amount of eel DNA. Um, but beyond that, we haven't had any real progress in the search for that particular creature. What are your thoughts on Loch Ness right now? Well, um, the problem um, when it comes to Loch Ness and also, you know, a lot of um, lakes where there are alleged to be strange creatures, you know, is the sheer size of them. For example, I mean, Loch Ness is roughly 22 miles long, about a mile wide 
and at its deepest, around about 700 feet deep. And a lot of people don't realise that the um, the water itself is almost black. It's um, it's extremely dark and thick with peat and mud and dirt. Um, and if you add to that the fact that, you know, not many people see these creatures, which suggests that, you know, they're not they're probably not reptiles like a crocodile or an alligator, which has to surface every so often, you know, like every 45 minutes, 30 minutes, to take in oxygen. These things are seen so, um, or hardly ever, so the likelihood is there's some sort of fish, you know, which gets its oxygen out of the water through its gills. So I think the primary reason why we're not seeing these things is because they hardly ever surface. And given the fact that it's like 22 miles long and there may not be that many of them, you'd really have to be in the right place at the right time when they surface and stay up long enough for you to see one or photograph one. But over the years, there have been some interesting pictures. But, you know, it's like I said when you're talking about sort of massive bodies of water and these things hardly ever surfacing, it isn't really that surprising that we wouldn't see them so much. You know, if they if they were something that, you know, like us, where they have lungs, where they've got to keep coming up, you'd be seeing them all the time. But we're not, you know. I mean, a lot of people may not realise that there are only usually about five or six good, solid cases per year. You know, maybe one or two or three photographs, and that really is it. And, of course, you've got the logistics angle. You know, a lot of people who have got a big passion for Nessie seeking, um, you know, they might have a full-time job, which means they can only take a week or two off from their regular job. Or, you know, if you want to get down to the bottom of the, the lock, you know, and with a submarine, a mini submarine, which a number of people have done, well, you know, imagine the cost of what it must be to hire a submarine. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> so there's actually like the logistics and the elusiveness of the creatures themselves, I think. But the, the DNA um, scientific study that you're talking about is an interesting one because some researchers think that the Loch Ness monsters are um, like giant eels. Now, we're not talking about regular eels, which can grow up to sort of 6, 8, 10, 12 feet in length, and there have been rumours of eels growing to like 14 or 15, 16 feet. Um, but in these cases, people are, are sort of postulating that we're talking about giant eels of maybe 30 feet in length. But of course, you know, the Loch Ness eel doesn't sound as cool as the Loch Ness <laughs> monster. Um, but um, I don't think anybody would sort of disagree that if you're sort of out in a boat on Loch Ness and you see a 35 to 40 foot long eel with a body, you know, the, the size of a, an oil drum charging towards you, you probably wouldn't disagree that that's not a monster, you know, <laughs> or it's a monster, I should say. Um, so the, you're right, when you said earlier about the uh, finding a lot of eel DNA in Loch Ness, that's interesting. The, the only... Um, sort of negative side of it is that DNA can tell you what 
it is that you found. DNA analysis can tell you what you found, but you cannot get any sense of the size of the animal. You know, if you took DNA eel, excuse me, DNA from an eel that was 30 feet long, and then you took it from another one that was two feet long, there would be no difference. It, right. Size has no difference, you know, when it comes to DNA study. So, you know, the... the um, the idea that it, they could be um, giant eels is possible, but the only problem is that eels, you know, they, they're basically like a long body, and what they cannot do is raise their heads and necks out of the water. They don't have sufficient muscles to do that. And so that's one thing against the eel theory. And, like, you know, the, the one um, theory that everybody likes, and particularly the Scottish tourist board, is the, um, the idea that they're plesiosaurs, surviving mm -hmm. reptiles from the Jurassic dinosaur uh, era. The, the only the two problems with the plesiosaur theories, one is the fact that they were just like um, crocodiles and alligators. They were marine reptiles, so they would have had to surface like every 25 30 minutes you know crocodiles can actually hold the breath a long time and so it makes sense that plesiosaurs probably could as well so if you've got a colony of say 10 or 12 in loch ness at any time and they're all surfacing every half an hour if they're plesiosaurs you should be seeing them a lot you know a huge amount so that kind of, you know, sort of crosses off the board the plesiosaur angle. And, and I'm sort of inclined to go with the idea of oh, two ideas. One is that um, they're a type of animal that we actually haven't found yet, you know, something that has, science hasn't classified at all. And the other theory, which is an interesting one, which I wrote an entire book on, was the idea that some researchers and witnesses think these are creatures are more sort of supernatural than they are flesh and blood animals you know the idea of something um sort of paranormal for example there have been sightings where people have tried to take pictures of the Loch Ness monsters and the cameras have some uh, suddenly jammed people talk about these creatures um in very different ways some describe them as like a plesiosaur um one witness described it as like a tusked animal, another one um, as like a giant worm, almost as if they were almost like shapeshifters, you know, sort of supernatural shapeshifters. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting theories and ideas, but we've got a lot of data over the years and the decades and the centuries. But we, I have to admit, you know, we are sort of lacking in, in solid answers. That supernatural theory that you just mentioned as it relates to uh, Nessie ha seems to be being floated for many of these things that we haven't been able to explain or find, like like Sasquatch Bigfoot or things like Chupacabra. It start, it's starting to appear that this might be the reason so many of these creatures are so elusive. What do you think about this theory oh. applying to other things? Well, yeah, I actually do go along that uh, path for the most part. I mean, the book that I wrote on Nessie, um, which has got the the stunningly uh, original title of Nessie, <laughs> <laughs> um, that one actually focuses on the supernatural aspect of the story. For example, um, the famous occultist Alistair Crowley actually had a house on the shores of Loch Ness called Beleskin House when he lived there in the early part of the 20th century. And um, 
he performed all sorts of rites and, rites and rituals to try and summon up, if you like, supernatural beings or entities from the lock. And it wasn't long after that that you had the large waves started to begin of sightings of the Loch Ness Monsters. And um, as I said, there are some weird cases of people you know, uh, trying to photograph these things and the cameras don't work or there's, there's a sudden drop in... Um, battery power, you know, totally inconvenient times. There's so many cases like that, and there have also been a lot of UFO sightings over Loch Ness as well. And you can also, as you, as you mentioned, you know, bore up like Bigfoot. Um, although most people who investigate things like Bigfoot, people who are known as like cryptozoologists, but I, I prefer like a term like monster hunt, you know, you say you're a cryptozoologist, <laughs> people go, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I like to go with the term monster hunter. But again, with, with Bigfoot, there have been a lot of weird reports where people have seen Bigfoot-type creatures in the woods and they've seen these strange balls of light flitting around the creatures and even reports of these animals vanishing in the flash of light as if they've sort of jumped from our reality to like another dimension or something like that so so my view is that one of the reasons why some of these creatures may be not just elusive but almost too elusive could be that they're not necessarily always in our reality i mean things like quantum physics today are sort of allowing for the existence of multiple dimensions and multiple realities. And so, you know, the idea that these things could kind of jump in and out of our reality is one that kind of interests me. And um, and the same with the, chup the Chupacabra. Um, I did a book a few years ago, about three or four years ago, called Chupacabra Road Trip, which was basically um, like a, a diary of all the expeditions I've been on to Puerto Rico and Brazil and Mexico looking for the Chupacabra. And, um, and in, in that particular um, case, in relation to the Chupacabra, um, again, a lot of the local people in Puerto Rico um, f full-on believe that the Chupacabra are some sort of supernatural creature rather than just an unknown animal that, that science hasn't found yet. Uh, uh, theories aside, have we made any significant progress in the search or verification of the existence of some of these creatures? Well, I mean, we have in the sense that we've got photographs and we've got audio recordings and, um, you know, we, of course we've got witness testimony, but... Um, it's inevitable that, you know, people are going to say, well, that photograph's faked or that guy's dressed in an ape suit, that kind of thing. And I understand that, you know, people want, you know, validation in the sense of hard evidence. And, and I have to admit that we don't have that. And, and again, I think one of the reasons is because they're not what they necessarily seem to be or are assumed to be. I mean, if you look at, again at Bigfoot, I mean, most people describe these things as being sort of seven to eight feet tall, maybe 300 to 400 pound, and they've been seen all across the United States. Um, but we've never caught one. You know, one's never ran across the road and got hit by a truck, etc., etc. You know, these things seem to be beyond elusive. And of course, you know, in a country 
as advanced as the United States, you would think by now we would have caught at least one eight-foot-tall monster <laughs> roaming around the right. U.S. Right. You know, it's, um, it doesn't seem feasible that creatures that huge could be not found, you know, or caught or captured. Um, so, again, I think that's a good, valid reason to suggest there's more or less to these creatures when it comes to trying to figure out what they are. You know, and uh, and there've been a lot of weird reports as well where these creatures have been seen around like ancient sacred sites. You know, like like these old mounds you can find in Wisconsin and places like that. And there've even been sightings of Bigfoot type creatures in some of the old ancient stone circles in the UK. Not around Stonehenge, I should stress. I should stress but there's a lot of much smaller ones, and there've been sightings of similar creatures there, which you know, again, kind of puts more of a mysterious aspect onto this. Now, a lot of cryptozoologists don't like to go down this paranormal pathway. They they want to really sort of steer it constantly down the, uh, the path that suggests they're just unknown animals or animals that we think are extinct but that may not have become extinct. And that could actually be the case. But with these kind of rogue, weirder cases, I think we're dealing with creatures that are far more supernatural than they are just like the American equivalent of an African gorilla or whatever. Nick, we have, uh, at least in the United States, moved toward um, uh, what would be considered to be a common um, situation where people have dash cams. And I also know that a lot of times when I hear people give me a report of sighting a Bigfoot, uh, it's frequently when they're driving. They're, or, you know, they'll say something crossed the road or was standing on the side of the road. I mean, it's often from uh, the vantage point of an automobile on a roadside or, or crossing the road. These, these dash cams that are now becoming popular with people uh, may very well kept, catch some footage that has, has been elusive for so long. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are... You know, when it comes to lake monsters and Bigfoot and things like that, there are actually a lot of pictures. The, the problem is a lot of people just dismiss them. Sure. Because may, and they mainly dismiss them because, well, Bigfoot can't exist, so the picture's got to be fake, you know, <laughs> right. which is kind of a bit of a skewed logage, uh, logic. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, there are some obviously some pictures which... Uh, and footage clearly fake just because somebody wants to get hits on YouTube or whatever. Um, but in saying that, there are more than a handful of photographs which I think do stand the test of time um, and which do depict something that was seen in the woods. Um, but, you know, I, I guess... I guess it's kind of like being, you know, people say, well, why, don't, why doesn't everybody take a picture? Uh, I kind of draw a parallel with, you know, if you're driving down the street or walking down the street and you suddenly see, like, the world's worst car accident, two cars slamming into each other, one catches fire, somebody's in the car and screaming. You, some people will run to help. Other people will stand there just in a total panic, not knowing what to do. And I kind of think to see a Bigfoot close-up might actually, even for me, be similar to that. It, like your normal thinking functions go totally out of the window. Um, I mean, to give you a, a classic 
and kind of graphic example. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of strange, but you, it, it does explain the point I'm making. There, I know of actually three cases where hunters actually saw one of these. Not, I should stress they were all totally separate, different parts of the U.S. Um, saw one of these things literally sort of up close and personal and stood there and all three just peed themselves. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because it was just such a shock. Sure. And and I and I kind of I kind of think that may be the reason why you expect people to get pictures, but they don't because the sheer shock of seeing an eight foot tall human ape like looking thing staring at you, you know, four hundred pounds and tearing over you by about two feet or whatever. Um I can understand why sometimes people don't think to get their phone out. That might be the very last part of their mind. They might be thinking, am I about to be torn apart? And they don't even have the ability to run. You know, their legs are just stuck, you know, glued to the ground. So so I think, you know, that, that has some merit, the idea that the shock factor may actually sometimes have an issue you know, when it comes to um, to try and capture a picture. Yeah, know? I think often those that are critical of people that don't get pictures when they're in that situation tend to discount the fact that, you know, it, tend, it usually is only an encounter that lasts a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. And when you are startled and surprised and bewildered by what you're seeing, a couple seconds isn't a long enough time for you to gather yourself, pull out a camera, unless you're specifically out there looking and you know trying to, and pointing the camera and trying to find something. You're probably not going to have enough time to to snap that photo. So it can, it's certainly conceivable and understandable how that can happen. Uh, let's kind of turn to the alien front. What's the latest? Nick, in um, sightings of aliens, or maybe even just uh, as people looking to the skies, sightings of UFOs on unexplained craft? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's so much um, sightings um, that have got people really interested in the last year or two. It's the sort of the revelations that um, at the end of 2017, when the the New York Times broke this story, um, basically saying that the the U.S. government had got this sort of hidden um, UFO program, UFO research program, that everybody assumed, as the Air Force had said, that they'd got out the UFO game in the late 60s when they shut down their Project Blue Book. Um, And then to find at the end of 2017 that there was this um, sort of... um, Carefully um, run and quietly funded, etc. And uh, it was only when, the, as I said, the media broke the story that it suddenly became clear that, well, the government is still investigating UFOs. And then, of course, um, various pieces of footage and photographs surfaced out of this program. Um, where there was evidence of pilots seeing some of these things and pursuing them. And I think what hap- what has happened in the last sort of two years ago is that the UFO subject, which for so many years has, has had a lot of followers, you know, thousands and thousands, but it's always, I think, been seen as a little bit of a, you know, a, just sort of a fringe, weird topic until... You know, we now know that um, the government's been pursuing this for a long, long time. 
And I think now what's been seen is the mainstream media has started to take this seriously because they realise, you know, we're not talking about somebody sees a UFO, you know, and they some roll out the bar on at midnight on a Friday night, you know, um, after a few drinks. We're talking about um, qualified pilots, that kind of thing. So I think, as I said at the beginning of that question, or the, my, the answer to the question, um, I don't think it's so much a growth in UFOs. It's more of a realisation that this subject is taken seriously uh, within government and the military. So I think that, more than anything else, has been the, the big change. And, you know, that reflects as well in a lot of channels on TV, like Travel Channel, Discovery, um, History, you know, all of whom in the last um, year or so put out a lot of UFO-themed documentaries and series. Yeah, and I think you mentioned something very, very important there, and that is that there seems to be a thawing in the attitude of yeah. whether it's the people controlling the what the pilots and what the military pilots say, or it's just the pilots themselves. I know there's a combination, but it's not just military pilots that are starting to come forward and say, yeah, I fly all the time, and I've seen this, and I've seen this, and I've seen this, and we can't explain it. Well, I think there's, there's part of it like that. You know, it's like a, a lot of things in life, Nobody wants to say anything until somebody else starts it, you know, right, and then right. they all join in. So I think there's a degree of that. And particularly, you know, pilots, they don't want to, even I have to admit this, they don't want to be known as the pilot who sees little green men, you know. <laughs> so I can easily understand why for years pilots, and particularly probably airline pilots, you know, don't want to say, hey, you know, I saw a, a UFO and, you know, it chased us or we chased it through the skies, that kind of thing. And but now that that is sort of changing. So I think there's there's that I think part of it is, you know, when somebody comes forward, it brings other people forward and they feel more comfortable talking about it. There's definitely that side to it. But then you have some people in what's called the um, UFO disclosure movement. People who believe that the government is sort of subtly and slowly releasing bit by bit information so that one day they'll reveal the truth and it won't be too much of a, a you know a mind-blowing thing because they've been sort of leak deliberately leaking material you know is as a means to um to get us climatized to the idea that ufos and aliens do exist um so you know, there's, we're in sort of interesting times now, you know, in relation to UFOs, where we don't really know where it's all going. But I think there is this sense that in the last couple of years, things have started to open up. And, of course, the big question is, why is it opening up? You know, it's not like the government has to reveal this material. So I think that's an interesting aspect as well. Perhaps, you know, the idea that one day... You know, we might have all the answers, not because it's suddenly thrown in our face, but bit by bit, we we all become, you know, used to the idea that right. something's going on, and then, and then maybe you know they reel out something, um, which is undeniable. You know, sort of, you know, the the bodies of four or five dead aliens from, you know, twenty thirty years ago, preserved in tanks, that kind of thing. You know, that sort of. If the government really does have sort of that kind of evidence and it, and it was put out there for people to see, that would be 
you know, that would be amazing. That would, and I'd probably have to get another job then. What's your opinion, though? Uh, you know, there are several different degrees that could exist when it comes to government knowledge of this. One is just that the government has has evidence that that they these things exist, whether it's just uh, craft or it's actual uh, aliens on the ground. Uh, two is that they actually have physical evidence of their existence, and three is that they're actually uh, not only aware of them, but they're talking to them and striking deals with them and sharing technology with them or from them. Which of those three degrees do you think is most likely? Well, well that's, a, that's a good question. Um, what, I, what I would say for sure is that it very much depends on who you ask, even within governments. I mean, for example, you've got old-timers who, like in their 90s, literally in their 90s now, who were out at Roswell, you know, and who claimed to have been at the crash site, and, you know, the fam- family relatives talk about how their grandfather swore that he saw these little bodies out at the, the ranch in Roswell where this... UFO supposedly came down, but then the Air Force are absolutely adamant that nothing of an alien um, nature came down at Roswell. If you ask the Air Force what came down at Roswell, they claim it was what was called a mogul balloon, the the huge, gigantic balloons that were sent up in the late 40s to uh, monitor for early Russian atomic bomb tests. And that's what the Air Force says the answer is. And they say that the bodies that everybody said were aliens were actually crash test dummies used in high-altitude parachute experiments. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, you've got the military's old-timers saying, yes, they saw these strange creatures, and the Air Force saying, no, you saw crash test dummies. So even within government and retired, you know, government people, um, there is this sort of glaring difference between who you ask. Um, I said the Air Force don't go with any of this with Roswell. Um, The old-timers do. Uh, Area 51, you know, the government says... um, What's you know the what's going on at Area 51 is just the testing of new and strange-looking aircraft that are still on the on the sort of uh, development stage and that look like UFOs. But then you've had people who've come forward who claim to have worked there and they said no, there are UFOs out there and dead aliens, you know, stored away that kind of thing. So, you know, I think what this demonstrates is that. You know, when people think of the government, they think of, like, one unified body. But it's not like that. You know, you've got, like, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the NSA, the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And, of course, within government, there's the concept of what's called need to know. In other words, just because you work in the CIA or the NSA, if your job doesn't require you to know about a particular thing like UFOs, you won't know. You know, it's not like you join the CIA and you're suddenly told on what happened at Roswell. <laughs> right, you know, that would right. be ridiculous. Right. Um, and that's the way secrets are kept, is that you're only told what you need to know to do your job. So when government agencies say no, we don't know anything about aliens at Roswell. I honestly don't believe they're lying. But that doesn't mean that some agency deeply buried into the the government infrastructure, that agency may actually know 
but the you know the the number of people who know is so small because you know the bigger the the program the more likely it's going to leak out so i think you know people don't realize that sometimes people within the government don't actually know what the government knows you know which sounds strange but that is how secrets are kept very often and you know we all automatically talk about the US government the US federal government what about foreign nations do we hear anything from any other country about this topic Oh yeah I mean since the um early um early 1990s the UK government have declassified um somewhere in the region of several thousand pages of documents of UFO sightings going back to the 1950s and there are a handful of reports um, from pilots um, where, interestingly enough, the pilots um, saw these sort of classic flying saucers. This, this one I'm talking about now is a 1957 case where sort of a classic flying saucer type craft was seen by the pilot of an aircraft off the coast of England. Um, and the ground radar operators were tracking it at the same time. So that was sort of, you know, where you'd got um, two different types of evidence. And those files, like a lot of the U.S. files, um, were classified and held away for years. But uh, the U.K., Australia, um, France, um, Brazil, particularly Brazil, uh, the Brazilian Air Force have um, released over the years a huge amount. And they're extremely open um, with their files and also... New Zealand. Um, we're not seeing too much coming out of um, China. Um, and there's sort of a, a limited amount coming out of Russia. But, um, you know, a lot of the other countries have, have started to become quite open, you know, in relating to um, the general public and saying, okay, you know, we realize, you know, maybe it should have been classified 50 years ago, but. Now it's something that's of interest to people, and maybe there's no national security issue. So here's the files. That's that's literally how it's kind of started to go. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being with us tonight. A couple quick things to talk about, then we'll get back to our discussion with our guest, Nick Redfern. First of all, I want to thank Christine Stroh for being a supporter on our Patreon page. Thank you for doing that, Christine, and helps us bring the program to you. We really do appreciate it, and uh, welcome you to our community. Uh, the other thing is, speaking of our community, make sure you go to YouTube and find our YouTube channel. That's where we stream live. That's where you get a little bit of a video feed for whatever that's worth. Worth. Plus, there's about 500 back episodes of Beyond Reality on that page. You can find a lot of great stuff there. Uh, so, again, just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. When you find it, please subscribe. And uh, make sure that you check out all of the bonus content plus the back uh, episodes. And if you click the notification icon when you subscribe, you will be notified when we go live and when we upload new content, whether it's uh, you know bonus stuff or something extra, whatever we happen to put up there. So it's always a, a great way to do it. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast version of the show on any major podcast platform. Um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, um, tune in. There's a whole bunch of them. Wherever you happen to enjoy your podcast, you should be able to find Beyond Reality Paranormal there as well. Tonight we're talking with Nick Redfern. He's an author, a paranormal researcher, 
Uh, he's here to talk about aliens, UFOs, crop circles, and anything we happen to bring up, which we've already crossed many topics that we I don't think we intended to be chatting about, Nick. But it's always fun to have you on the program because we can talk about anything, and that's that just makes uh, you know the night fly by. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where I cover a lot of ground, you know, whether it's Bigfoot, UFOs, Chupacabra, aliens, um, some supernatural stuff. I'm not really into ghost stuff. It doesn't really interest me that much. So, uh, but... Yeah, if there's anything's a bit weird, you know, I'll I'll give it a tackle. So we have uh, we were talking about Area 51 a bit before the break, and I just have to ask you about this because back in the uh, late summer, early part of the fall, there was this big storm Area 51 mm-hmm. uh, thing. It turned out to be a lot of nothing uh, in the end of the day, but uh, for a long time, there were millions of people that were uh, lending support to this idea that uh, you know people should just en masse try to break into Area 51 and see what's actually there. Um, what are your thoughts about that? The, not the, not the necessarily the fact that people were going to storm the gates, but more importantly that there are so many people that seemed very, very motivated to get some real answers. Mm. Well, I think one of the reasons is because everybody, just about everybody, has heard of Area 51. You know, it's kind of like these weird situations. It's, it's a top-secret base, but everybody's heard of it. You, know? right, right. you don't find that very often. And it's almost unique, or possibly it is unique, you know, in terms of how you literally cannot get within like a 15, 16 miles of the base itself. And it's surrounded by mountains. And 24-7, there are guards and they have... Um, motion detector equipment, you know, which can actually detect the difference between a human sort of, um, you know, creeping across the desert at night versus a jackrabbit or something like that. Um, so, you know, it's extremely well guarded. And, of course, you know, it's got this legend of crashed and retrieved UFOs stored away at Area 51. So everybody's heard about this. And, and, and the one big intriguing aspect is that you don't have to be into ufos to have heard of area 51 you can ask anyone what's area 51 and they'll say that's where the the ufos are stored or where the aliens live that kind of thing so you know it's very, area 51 has very much become part of pop culture which you would never think a military base would, would achieve that kind of um status if you like um but as far as as it ties in you know with the storming area 51 you know i mean my view is this that if if you want to sort of go out to the area and and hang out you know in, in a, a legal area sort of you know uh, where the, the actual distance where you can legally walk to, you know, if you want to sit out there and look at the sky with a couple of beers, and you know, and your friends out there, I don't think there's, there's anything wrong with that because you're not breaking any laws. But my view is that given particularly the state the world's in right now, I don't think anyone should be encouraging anyone to invade, literally storm, storm, use that word, to storm a U.S. military base. You know, if it was any other... I mean, this started on Facebook, you know, when this one guy basically whipped up all this interest and, you know, and it got to this point where people were talking about, well, let's storm Area 51, and people were saying, cool, you know, we'll find the aliens. 
Well, you imagine if just any other military base in the U.S., somebody said, we're going to storm this base and we're going to storm that base. You know, like I said, I don't think in this in the way the world is today, no one at all should be encouraging anyone to storm any U.S. base because you're just asking for trouble, you know. I mean... You, you you jump the fence in a you know in a military base today. Don't you know? Don't blame the guys the other side of the fence right. if they shoot you, right. because for all they know, you you're a terrorist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and it uh, you know that whole thing kind of petered out in the end, and they didn't get yeah, nearly did. nearly the crowds they thought they were going to get. In fact, we had a a guest on who was having a festival at one of the locations near the base, and. Uh, uh, and they were, you know, talking about how tickets were selling like crazy or whatever. And it turns out they they opened it on Friday of that weekend, and they closed by the end of Friday evening and never reopened because there were so few people there. So it didn't really turn well, out to be what they thought. Well, I think part of the reason was there the, the was this realization that people, when they looked at it in sort of, you know, a, an open fashion, they realized people being encouraged, like I said, to to invade a U.S. military base. And if it wasn't Area 51, no one would, evil, would, would, would even um, you know, think about doing something like that. You, you, you just would not do it. But for some reason, people think it's okay to do it with this ultra-secret base, Area 51. And, um, and as I said, you do something like that, well, in today's world, you're li- liable to come back you know, with a bullet in your head, because, yeah. you you know, you, for all we know, people who claim to have been UFO researchers, I mean, some of them, we don't, this might sound a bit paranoid, but some of those people who are out there may well have been sort of, you know, um, sure. somebody spying on what was going on. And, and if they're pulled over, they'd just say, oh, you know, we're just UFO guys, and, and the cops will just say, on your way, you know. Um but, the, you know, there could be that sinister, sinister side to it as well. Let's talk about your book, uh, The Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth. I mean, that those last few words uh, say a whole lot. Are there extraterrestrial beings here on Earth, Nick? Well, I think there are. Because I think there's been so many good, solid reports of people who claim to have seen sort of strange creatures, aliens, whatever you want to call them, coming out of UFOs, that kind of thing, and, and stories like alien abductions. But uh, the main reason why I wanted to write the book was because, you know, when you think of aliens, it's kind of like Area 51. You know, everybody's got an image of, of, an image of Area 51. Everybody's got an image of what an alien looks like. You know, you, you, gave a, you give a pencil and paper to a five-year-old kid and say, draw an alien. They'll draw like a big head and black eyes and like a little body. Everybody kind of knows aliens. That's how they're supposed to look. Um, but over the decades, there have been numerous different types of... Um, of, of aliens have been reported and so I thought well why not write a book in sort of A to Z style um, that, that details all the different types of aliens that witness, witnesses claim to have seen and uh, as a, and you know the, the majority do fall into that category of like the, the small creatures with the large heads and the, and the, the black eyes but people have described seeing um, sort of reptilian-type creatures, um, 
um, aliens that look very much like us. Um, you name it, you know, they've they've sort of been they've been seen. Um, you have creatures that um, have become part of pop culture, if you like, like Mothman, um, based on John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, uh, which was made into a movie uh, with Richard Gere. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a huge uh, variation on what people you know define as an alien, what it looks like. So I thought, you know, why not do sort of the top 50 um, sort of different types of aliens that people have reported and the cases that, that they related to and, you know, what these entities might actually be. We have had reports of um, creatures or, that are near human looking, uh, but mm. with slight differences. Uh, and in fact, you even brought up the Mothman uh, story. And part of the Mothman story is the fact that there were what appeared to be humans that weren't quite right. Um, you know, if if they can blend in well enough that you'd have to take a couple glances to be able to see any differences, uh, the, you know, they very well could be walking among us and we wouldn't know it. If they are this more uh, what we would consider a traditional looking big eyes, big head, little body thing, they're not going to be able to hide among the population very well. No. What, what do you think we've got going on here? Which kind? Well, I mean, we could have, you know, sort of numerous different things going on at the same time. I think a lot of people, you know, just if you're interested in these things or you just, you know, take a, a casual interest, you might think, oh, they all just look like this. But you're right, there are some which, in theory, could sort of um, manoeuvre among us and, and we wouldn't know. I mean, this actually relates to the, uh, almost sort of perfectly, to the Men in Black mystery. Now, you know, if you mention the Men in Black um, to anyone, you know, they'll first, the first thing they'll think of is Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Sure, you know, yeah, yeah. From the movies. But a lot of people don't realise that the movies were actually based on real-life reports of people who claimed that after seeing a UFO, they were visited by these strange men in black. Now, whereas in the movies, um, the men in black were, you know, secret agents of, of a secret agency silencing people in relation to UFOs, the real men in black, um, the stories of which go back to the early 1950s, that the first book on the men in black was actually written in 1956. It was called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, written by a guy named Gray Barker. And most of the witnesses to the real men in black, going back to the 50s, have described the MIB as looking sort of very human-looking, but very pale and skinny, and they have this, the skin kind of looks like plastic, or as, as one witness described it, they said as if they'd, the person looked like they'd overdone the Botox, you know. They looked like, like a, a mannequin's kind of face. And they also had sort of these bulging eyes and um, kind of like an anemic look to them as well. And the witnesses said that, you know, very often they would wear these old-style fedora hats and wrap-around sunglasses and that they could see these bulging eyes sort of hiding behind the sunglasses as, as if the fedoras and the sunglasses were were deliberately designed so people wouldn't get a full look at them and they wouldn't think, wow, you know, what's wrong with that person? Um, so you've got 
stories like this of the, the MIB um, that, you know, they could probably crash, uh, pass you in the streets um, if you didn't look too closely at them. And, you know, if you walked by them at night, you probably wouldn't notice anything strange. But get close up to them, then people realize, wow, these people actually don't look like people. So that that's sort of a, a perfect example of the the one type of alien that a lot of the witnesses report, this sort of very human-looking being, but with a few differences that would really make you sort of look twice. Do you think this human-looking being that it would be alien in nature is showing itself in its natural form, or do you think they have some kind of shape-shifting ability? Or is it more of a, a some type of prosthetic? Mm. Well, actually, that prosthetic angle is, is um, one that's been reported on a number of occasions where, and again, particularly with the Men in Black um, cases, some of the witnesses felt that when they were looking at these men in black, it actually did look like sort of prosthetics as if, you know, almost like someone who had, you know, um, uh, like the, the face damaged or burned and, you know, they'd had surgery or prosthetics added on. Um, some of the witnesses actually said something almost, you know, um, identically to that. But the, again, the shapeshifter angle that you brought up, that's an interesting one because there are some cases, and this gets really weird and bizarre, um, particularly in relation to the, the stories of these so-called reptilians, sort of upright, um, sort of reptile, lizard-type creatures, um, that people claim to have seen them sort of shapeshift from a human form um, into like a an upright reptilian form. Now, of course, as I'm sure as you might know, there have been these rumours and stories, which I don't personally believe, but, you know, that the idea that the British royal family are, are reptilian, <laughs> right. you know, that's sort of one of the, the big conspiracy theories, but uh, even I don't go that far. But, <laughs> but, um, but there's no doubt that there is, like, a, a very large following for that particular theory you know you can find message boards you know chat rooms you name it um and i'm not a particular fan of the royal family i'm not doing it to defend them i just think the whole scenario is a little bit over the top um but you know people do talk about these things sort of um shape-shifting from from human to reptilian and back again and um and for me i would say that's at the very far end of the the credibility aspect of all this but um but i think you know if like i hope i am you know you you work on things with a rational head on your shoulders you know you have to be honest and say look okay i think this is feasible but i think that's garbage you know you cannot just accept every story sort of wide wide you know your eyes wide open and your mouth wide open you know just amazed you've got to investigate these cases as i do in the same way that i would investigate any kind of um story for like a newspaper or for an online uh, magazine that kind of thing um you know you have to be grounded and careful what you accept um, particularly when it comes to 
you know, stories that might be provided anonymously, you know, and um, the last thing you need is some joker um, trying to pull the wool over your eyes. If, in fact, there are aliens walking among us, what is their intention, do you think, Nick? Are, are they here for benevolent purposes, uh, nefarious purposes, uh, ob- just observing? What do you think they're doing? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that I haven't seen any hard evidence that they've actually helped us. I mean, you know, arguably the world's in a pretty bad state right now in various right. ways. Right. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, the... Uh, just the state of the world, you know, in, in terms of just fighting, battling, you know, conflicts, and also, you know, weird weather, that kind of thing, pollution, and so on. So I haven't seen any evidence that they've tried to intervene and do something about all that. Um, but on the from the other angle, I also haven't seen hard evidence that you know they've acted in a, in a highly dangerous um, way either, and I think they probably do fall into sort of like a self-preservation um, aspect. In other words, like us, they you know they look after number one, and that doesn't mean they they're out to destroy us or take over the planet. But, you know, I mean, if you look at the alien abduction stories, um, a lot of the witnesses claim that when they were abducted and taken on board UFOs, that, um, like, DNA and skin and cells and blood and saliva was taken from them as if the the goal was possibly to, um, you know, use our DNA as a means to beef up their DNA there are stories about the so-called greys, these uh, these smaller aliens with the big heads and the black eyes. Stories that perhaps their their lineage, if you like, um, is starting to degrade, and they need to, um, as I said, beef up their um, their DNA, if you like. And and if our DNA is compatible with theirs, then possibly you know they could actually derive something from us to allow them to survive. So a lot of the abduction stories do seem to revolve around medical experimentation, DNA cells, and um, a lot of people do, researchers do believe that there is some sort of, like almost like a hybrid agenda at work to allow these creatures to stay alive. Do you find any legitimacy in what I'm hearing more often, these ideas that aliens, you know, the ancient alien idea, that aliens came here a long time ago and may have uh, mated with the early human population uh, to create what we would know today as uh, modern human? Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the more controversial ones. And, and really, you know, you can push it. You can push the same story down two pathways. For example, you know, you look at um, early ancient religious texts. You know, they talk about, um, you know, the the giants coming down from the sky and, and mating with the human women. And, 
you know, people have, dis- have suggested, you know, that the the giants that you can find in, in numerous different types of ancient religious texts, um, you know, people have suggested they could be aliens. And in the same fashion, some researchers have said that things like the Star of Bethlehem was not a star, but it was a UFO hovering over Bethlehem, that kind of thing. Um, so I think, you know, the, the one problem is that the the older and older the story, the more and more difficult it is to solve anything. And you are basically um, forced to either sit on one of the two sides, either or actually there's three sides. You either believe in the religious side of it, you believe in the alien side of it, or you think it's just stories. Um, and And again, it depends on which side you're on. But, I mean, there's no doubt that today, you know, the whole kind of ancient alien scenario has a massive following. You know, it's, um, in an ironic sense, it's almost like it's becoming like a religion itself, you know. Um, So I I think to some degree, this, one of the reasons why I think there is such an interest in the ancient astronaut aspect is because for a lot of people who, you know, we all live in a hugely technological world, for a lot of people it, it kind of resonates uh, with them in the sense that, you know, comparing our technology today with what may have been technology in the distant past, you know, you can see it in our world today. For example, you know, look at the, the Old Testament story of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's like, a, you know, an entire crowd of people who believe that Sodom and, and Gomorrah were nuked by a- aliens. Right. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of controversy when it comes to interpreting a lot of these ancient texts as this or as that. Where can people get a hold of your books? Um, well, all my books are available on Amazon, and um, around about 60% of them, you can get them off the shelves in Barnes & Noble. And you have a lot of books to choose from, and I'm sure t- they're, you know topic-sensitive would be part of the answer to this question, but do you have any place that you recommend people start with your work? Um, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. <laughs> um, well, um I would I would actually say the I did one called the Real Men in Black, uh, which people might find that interesting because it sort of demonstrates the the reality behind uh, behind Hollywood. And uh, for people who are interested um, in the whole issue of um, like ancient aliens, um, I did one called Bloodline of the Gods, which sort of ties in with this this these theories about um, you know ancient aliens visiting the earth and um and for people who are into you know strange creatures things like that i did um a book a couple of years ago called the bigfoot book um which is like an a to z of everything you need to know about bigfoot so black-eyed children this is one of those phenomena that is rather rare at least from what i understand i've never had the experience myself of course uh but rather rare but probably more intriguing than many others so what's the deal with black-eyed children well, yeah, this is sort of like a definitively supernatural or paranormal phenomenon. Um, there's really no other category 
you can put it into. And stories of the, the black-eyed children have been sort of circulating quietly, actually for about 20 years now. But it's really only been in the last five or six years or so that the whole phenomenon has really taken off. And basically, it involves sightings of what are called the black-eyed children. And they're called the black-eyed children because witnesses describe their eyes as being like literally completely black, not just the center part, but the whole eye is solid black. Now, in almost every case on record, and I have um, literally dozens of cases, as does a friend of mine, David Weatherly, who wrote the sort of definitive book on the, on the black-eyed children. Um, typically, the scenario is that people will get like a knock on the door late at night, and, you know, like anyone, you think, who on earth sat at the door this time of night? And so, you know, people look through the, you know, the little spy hole in the door and, um, and they see usually two or three kids almost always dressed in black hoodies and with their heads looking down. And this is where it gets weird. A lot of the witnesses claim they felt almost compelled or hypnotized to open the door. And so they open the door, and then you've got these kids with this sort of pale skin, not unlike the men in black, looking like almost like a Botox-type face, and with these huge black eyes. And they ask, they try and find a way to be invited into the house. You know, we're lost. Can we come in and use the phone? Um, we're homeless. Can we come in and have some food? And And they always, they never come into the house until they're invited, which actually ties in with the old legends of, of vampires that, you know, won't cross the threshold until they're invited. Right. Now, on the, on the few occasions when people have, in this hypnotized state, allowed them to come in, the witnesses have started to feel sort of weak and tired, almost as if, as some of the witnesses said it, almost as if they were being drained of their life force, you know, of their energy. So it's a very bizarre and very sinister story um, of these sort of creepy kids demanding to come into the house and and then sort of um, just draining the person of their, I said, like their life force almost. And, um, you know, it sounds like something for your, you know, perfect horror movie, which I guess in some respects it actually is. Um, but, you know, I would... I would write a lot of these stories off as like urban legend. Was it not for the fact that um, there are so many credible stories? I mean, for example, the very first person who um, talked about this on the internet uh, was a guy named Brian Bethel, who is a well-respected journalist in Texas, mainstream journalist. And, um, and he went public um, in the late 90s with his story. And, and Brian, you know, he's a, a regular journalist, and he said he saw two of these kids by, right by his car, and he just got this really creepy vibe from them. And um, so when you've got people like Brian Bethel, um, you know, you have to look at it again and realize that the people who are seeing these so-called black-eyed children are not weirdos, fantasists, you know, hoaxers. They are everyday people put in a really weird situation. Uh, there could be many possibilities uh, for the source of this phenomena. could be alien. Um, but I'm more concerned with the possibility that it could be demonic in nature. Do we have any evidence that might support one way or another? Oh, 
well, that's actually one of the, the big theories that um, a lot of researchers of the phenomenon have. You know, the idea that you, we're dealing with something uh, sort of definitively evil and, you know, and as, as you say, like demonic in, in, in the way it's, it's sort of, you know, perceived, that, that term. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people who do believe that, you know, this is um, something that's... Uh, has almost been invoked, if you like, you know, from sort of other hellish realm, that kind of thing. And um, and a lot of the witnesses have said that they felt that the when they saw the black-eyed children in front of them, they actually felt as if there was like um, like a like an atmosphere of dread and an atmosphere of evil that they couldn't put their finger on it as to why there was this sort of air of, of evil. Um, but that's what they, a lot of them have said. You know, it was just a feeling of, of dread, a feeling of something terrible and, and unearthly. Do we have any stories of these black-eyed children encounters uh, where there was a religious um, symbol used to maybe ward them off or make them turn around or affect them in any way? Do we know anything like that? Um, not really. The only way that I know from the witnesses to prevent them interacting with you is just not to let them in the house. But, as I said, in some cases, the witnesses felt as if they were being hypnotized and almost mind-controlled to open the door, which you would not normally do at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and with a couple of kids outside dressed in hoodies. Um, So that, you know, there isn't really a way to stop it in, in those situations. But what I can tell you is that when I looked into the backgrounds of some of, not all of them, but some of the witnesses to the Black Eyed Children, when I'd interviewed them, I should say, um, it turned out during the course of the interviews that perhaps a couple of weeks beforehand, um, they were sort of playing around with things like Ouija boards, um, or they at some point had dabbled in, you know, sort of alternative magic and things like this and um and also in some cases you know um joining occult groups and some of them who walked away from these groups felt that the the very fact that they got involved in these types of groups and people possibly opened a door um that allowed the the black eyed children to come through in other words you start messing with the paranormal then it starts to mess with you so if they open the door, does that mean that the black-eyed children then visited them? Or or are we talking about opening a door so these black-eyed children just come out and uh, come through this portal, whatever it happens to be, a figurative door, and then uh, roam uh, wherever they want to and visit whoever they intend to? Yeah, it's more the, it's more the second category where people are dabbling with the paranormal and then they get the visit from the black-eyed children. You know, in other words, it isn't always just like a random person who is targeted. Um, very often I've found, um, you know, that they, that the witnesses themselves um, were or had been sort of, you know, digging into these controversial areas and then then they get the knock on the door. You know, it's, uh, it's actually, if you... Um, to take a phrase from the Mothman uh, prophecies that we mentioned earlier, one of the characters in the book says, these things noticed you because you noticed them, 
and then they noticed you. So it's like a spiraling thing. You start to dig into this, and the phenomena seems to realize that that you're looking for it, and then it turns the tables and basically gives you what you want, but in the worst way possible. I know we talked about Area 51 a little while mm-hmm. ago, but um, I have to ask you, what are foggles? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's actually a really weird but interesting story. You know, Area 51 is one of these places where, you know, the, the government doesn't just want the public to know what's going on at Area 51. It's actually also its employees. Now, Area 51, it's called Area 51 because it's actually one of numerous areas in Nevada which have got designated different titles and different names. And so in in some places, some of the staff are not allowed to go here and some aren't allowed to go there, etc., etc. And so they give them what they what they call are these uh, froggles? They're kind of like uh, froggles. Um, they're like everyday goggles, but they have sort of the set. The lower part of the lens of the goggles are fogged. Excuse me. The top part, I should say, is fogged. And the only way you can see to walk is to have your head down and looking at the lo- out of the lower part of the goggles. And so the top part is fogged hence the term foggles. And so in other words, you're forced, you know, when you, all of the, all, I should stress, all of the staff who work at Area 51 uh, have flown out of um, Las Vegas, his McCarran Airport, um, back and forth. That's, um, you know, they work there like a week at a time. When they get off the planes, they have to put on the goggles and carefully sort of walk down the steps and across to whichever area they're working in and or if it's an area that they don't normally work in, you know, all the better in terms from from security. So, yeah, you, if you imagine it, you know, you've got these wraparound glasses or goggles, and you cannot see it all out of the half, you know, the top half. So you're forced to look down because of the fogging, and all you can see is your shoes, and you're sort of carefully shuffled into the building. Then you can take your, your foggles off. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> That's that's like a I don't know who came up with that, but it's kind of like an ingenious way of preventing from pe- people from actually seeing what's going on on the outside of the base, and that evening includes uh, the staff itself. Nick, it's been a great discussion tonight. Thank you so much for being here. We're out of time. What's next on your plate? Um, well, I've got a, a new book out in April called Assassinations, and it's like a, a history of assassinations throughout history, going right from, like, Julius Caesar oh, wow. and ancient Egypt, like, who shot JFK, that kind of thing, and right up to the present day. So it's uh, so it's not like a paranormal-type book. This one's slightly different, but it's more of a, you know... Who killed this person? Do you get you into know, the who, you, who assassinated that person? Yeah, do you get into the what ifs and possibilities, particularly as it comes to kind of conspiracy talk, or is this yeah, more of a historical? I, mean, I think you know, sometimes you, people can go over the top too much with conspiracy stuff, you know, and seeing a conspiracy around every corner. But um, you know, some of the early fascinating ones, you know, plots to kill Julius Caesar, you know, and how the how the whole plan worked, you know, these um, senators all got together and decided, you want him gone, we got want him gone, let's get him gone, you know, so uh, it's sort of a fascinating story, and I've also got things like Jack the Ripper, you know, was he um, 
just a crazy guy or was he, you know, assassinating people for a particular reason that might have sort of conspiracy attached to it. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of different angles to, you know, things like who shot JFK. Was it the Russians? Was it, you know, was it the the Cubans? Was it the Mafia? You know, so the book's basically a study of... 40 or 50 different cases and then sort of looking at the different theories and ideas that might explain why the assassinations happened and and who actually did it. We'll have to have you back on when that book comes out because that sounds like like a great discussion. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for being here tonight. Great. Had a great Uh, time. A lot of great information. Well, well, thanks a lot. Had Had a good time. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.